This Can Do Podcast is brought to you by Blake Albina Thoroughbred Services. Blake Albina is a full-service bloodstock agency and consignment company representing clients at every major horse sale in the country. For more information, call Ron Blake at 859-396-4836 or Hunsley Albina at 859-621-0800. Whether an experienced owner or a newcomer to the game, Blake Albina has the knowledge and experience to help you achieve your goals in the thoroughbred industry. I got the horse right here, the name is Paul Revere, and here's a guy that says if the web is clear, can do. This is Bill Duncliffe. I want to welcome you back to Can Do, the podcast about all things horse racing. Some history, some handicapping, and some humor. As the son of a newspaperman, I've always been fascinated by the pre-computer process of putting the paper out, and by the people who made that happen. Thanks to good friend Mike Mullaney, I was connected with Joe Rosen, longtime managing editor of the Daily Racing Forum, about what it was like at the Bible back in those days when linotype machines, pneumatic tubes, and characters straight out of Guys and Dolls put that and other newspapers out on the street on a daily basis. My conversation with Joe took place in a memorable venue, the Whitney Viewing Stand overlooking the Oklahoma training track in Saratoga. Of course, doing an interview outside like that means you are going to hear, among other things, wind noises and tracking noises, since the Oklahoma maintenance crew failed to recognize the podcast royalty on the viewing stand. Joe talked to us about how we got started working at the Daily Racing Forum. Like so many of us involved in racing in the newspaper business, it began as a family thing. And it harkened back to those long-ago days when cell phones weren't even contemplated by the creators of the Jetsons. Well, my father was the editor of the Morning Telegraph and the Daily Racing Forum back, I think he was probably named editor sometime in the 50s by Sam Perlman, who was then editor-publisher. He was... A Canadian, how he became connected with Walter Annenberg, who owned uh, those properties, uh, all the racing forms, the one in Chicago, L.A., Seattle, the racing form that was published in in Miami during the winters for the winter meetings. Um, they were owned by Walter Annenberg Triangle Publications. Um, basically, through most of the years that that my father, certainly through all the years my father worked there, and through most of the years that I worked there. How did I get become, oh, I became involved, I guess, through my father. The family thing, it sounds like. Yeah, I wasn't terribly interested in racing as a kid. I loved sports, I loved basketball and baseball, but racing didn't mean much to me. Um, And actually, one of my first memories of racing was my father, who was uh, thought to be by everybody who knew him to be really a superior handicapper, and that's how he started. He started actually... um, as a betting agent, I guess he was in his early twenties. He might have betting been. agents. Is that the same thing as a bookie, or is no, that, no? Uh, he okay, bet right. for <laughs> you've you've heard you you you're aware of the horse Alsab. I am not, but go uh, ahead. Alsab won a Derby. I, I think. I mean, he was a you know a, a, a triple crown contender. He's a very good three. Okay. He was owned by a guy named Al Sabbath, um, and my father bet for Al Sabbath. My father was betting thousands of dollars. Oh, okay. For so, Al okay. Sabbath had never seen a horse. Yeah. Other than. Somebody pulling a wagon in New York City had never been to a racetrack, was betting thousands of dollars. Um, and if, apparently, the story that I recall my father 
telling was that it was a there was a very rainy day and the tracks throughout the nation were extremely muddy or wherever Al Sabbath wanted to bet and my father be- begged him not to uh, to play that day because the tracks were off. Okay, and he insisted to, uh, that my father uh, bet for him, and my father would get a percentage of the action. Right, obviously. right. And uh, I guess they got killed. And I think my father at that point said, I've had enough. I can't do mm-hmm. I can't do this anymore. Um, he, my father was a handicapper for something called the Daily Running Horse, I think, which was an okay. offshoot somehow of the racing form. Then he became a handicapper for the racing form. Uh, whoever was running the, the, the place at the time recognized that he had editorial abilities. Mm-hmm. My father was, I think, graduated from high school, maybe. But, I mean, he was extremely well-read and uh, knew the English language and was extremely bright. And somebody recognized that. And ultimately, he became the editor of the Racing Farm, I believe, in the 50s. Okay. In any case, um, I think I became interested in racing sometime when I was, I guess, about 18 or 19 when I was going to college. I was going to University of Pennsylvania, and I used to, with a friend of mine, take a cab from classes over to Garden State Park. And which was pretty close by, but in any case, I you know I, I was interested, and then it was an easy thing, an easy transition for me to work at the racing forum during in, during the summers. summers and I yeah, used sure. to yeah. do. Um, I was a copy boy, and then I would do selections at all the small tracks at Charlestown and Shenandoah okay. Downs, and um, some of the Maryland half miles, whatever had to be done. I would do that, and then I would compile the consensus at times. Um, and then eventually I ended up working on the copy desk part-time. Um, and ultimately, after I, I graduated, I ended up at NYU, and then I, I went to graduate school at Columbia. I went to Columbia Graduate School of Journalism. So you were, uh, so was it, you were a journalism Yeah, major. I was interested yeah. in, okay. in and yep. I was a journalist, and I got a, a, a master's degree in journalism from Columbia. And right at that time, that was, about, that was 1966, I went to work full-time for the Racing Forum, and I always thought, well, it was some sense, obviously my father was the editor, that didn't hurt. Mm-hmm. But then again, it wasn't every day that the Racing Forum would find a young employee who knew racing as well as I knew it, but also had a degree in journalism. Mm, right, you know, I right. don't think those people walked off the street that, that, that quickly. So in any case, that's what uh, when I started working at the Racing Forum. Joe reminded us that, as you would imagine, Working at the Racing Forum, or the Morning Telegraph, and taking an active monetary interest in the product being discussed was not at all unusual. Let's face it, if you work for Stars and Stripes, you're going to be doing a lot of saluting, right? No difference, really. Everybody was betting, there was action all the time. Um, It was just a fun place to work. The executives, most of them bet. And I do have that image in my mind that uh, will will be with me till my, my last days of the the first race going off at, at uh, generally several, several tracks simultaneously around 1 or one thirty, And several of the executives, my father, the business manager, the assistant editor, could be a few other people, would walk into the wire room where the results would come in. Okay, all right, yeah. And uh, the first race would come in, and you'd see all these high-powered executives walking out, snapping their fingers, <laughs> you know, indicating that uh, at least uh, at least they were alive at a double. <laughs> <laughs> the other thing that used to make me laugh was some people were betting $10, $20 a race. There wasn't enough action for them. They'd be waiting over the machine for the result. They'd be betting dimes head to head. Oh, really? Yeah, <laughs> you know, oh, I get to teach you know, other, really. <laughs> you know. 
In an unsuccessful attempt at some union busting, the form left behind its New York City roots and moved to, dare I say, somewhere in the swamps of Jersey. But hold on tight, because they didn't take Joe into account. Then we moved to New Jersey. It was uh, ostensibly um, to escape uh, the, the unions. They wanted okay. to get away from the ITU, which was a printer's union. They wanted to get away from the newspaper guild, um, which represented the editorial workers. They pretty much got away from the ITU. They did not get away from the newspaper guild, thanks to me, because I organized. Yeah, New Jersey somehow. doesn't seem far enough to get away from unions. Well, uh, Central uh, Jersey was pretty far because okay, the, the okay. closest you could get was Trenton there, and okay. that was a much weaker local. But we actually negotiated a contract, not that it's particularly interesting to anybody else, that was based on a New York contract. So we got paid the same amount of uh, scale, the same scale, the same amount of money that is as if you worked at the New York Times. Thanks to his education and his native smarts, Joe was nevertheless moving up the ladder internally. But even though the offices had moved south, the same vibe still existed. I think by that time I had been named uh, regional editor, I don't know, some title. I, I was the editor of the Eastern Edition of the Racing Forum. And again, we used to fool around. We had a lot of laughs. Um, we were all betting. We all loved racing. We had our own handicapping contest that went on for years based oh, wow. on stakes racing stakes races, and um, I, I remember the year that I won it, I won $3,000, which was... It was a lot of money back then. Oh, yeah, it yeah, certainly was. Yeah. And, as I mentioned earlier, the form had its share of Runyon-esque characters. When we had handicappers, one in particular was, was a fellow named Danny Cohn, who originally handicapped for the racing form, made selections under the name Breakout. Okay. Um, and he, uh, he had two sayings, which I still... Uh, Stick with me to this to this day. Um, I remember one time he put a, he made a best bet of a first time starter in a I guess it was a three furlong race at the fairgrounds that started on the turn. Oh wow! And uh, <laughs> I hope he had the rail. <laughs> and uh, I, you know I'm sure the horse probably ran out of the money, but at, at that point he his his reasoning was that he uh, well to <laughs> to. to he said he, he had a right to be wrong. <laughs> and the other thing which was much more realistic was that uh, just because he put him on top doesn't mean he liked him. Fine, <laughs> 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 yeah. amusing. We had a handicapper named, uh, his handicapping name was Longshot Gaffney. His real name was Jules Shanzer. Okay. Um, and I think he got the name Longshot Gaffney because I don't think he probably ever picked a horse that was more than eight to five. Um that and kind he, of guy. Yeah, yeah, and he had yeah, a friend yeah. who uh, I guess was a minor member of the mob. Okay. Or maybe a major member, for all I know. But, I mean, he was a, he was a mobster of some sort. Probably a good source of tips, I would imagine. And I, I, that I don't know. But I remember mm. him speaking uh, uh, of the guy in such warm terms, saying, he's a great guy. Uh, just a wonderful Misunderstood. guy. Misunderstood. Yeah. Uh, just yeah. terrific. Yeah. I mean, yeah. he'll do anything for you. He'll give you the shirt off his back. <laughs> Yeah. But don't step on his toes. <laughs> <laughs> do anything for you or do anything to you? Which right. one? Or was it both? <laughs> I guess the latter. <laughs> the handicappers would write comments in, in, the, in the racing form for each horse. Mm -hmm. and, and many, certainly the major tracks, that was part of their assignment to, to have provide odds, make selections, also write a comment uh, 
should improve, all, all you know, yeah, that kind yeah, of nonsense. Yeah. Yeah. And I remember it's one handicap. I must have been very jaded that day and just it had it <laughs> and was sick of looking at bad horses, the yeah. best performances of bad horses, and wrote out his comment, which then had to be set in type by somebody, which I find is the most amazing thing. Yeah. Um, he wrote of, of the horse, always in shithouse. <laughs> Which I think was accurate. Yeah, you know, was probably the more most accurate comment yeah. of the day. Um, and somehow that got set. And it got set in type. Got did, set in yeah. type. Yeah. Yeah. Got proofed. Yeah. And appeared in public. You know, was in the paper that day. Yeah. I remember that was a major furor. I don't think that person. Hopefully, wasn't fired. But I think probably. Uh, as a guild chairman in the days, I probably had to go to a grievance committee yeah. meeting to save him. Or I don't remember oh, exactly. Man, that's hilarious. But yes, I remember that. Wow. Always in shithouse. <laughs> and I remember all of us thinking, yeah, that's right. Yeah, right. No, it's accurate, absolutely, right? I mean, that's, yeah, yeah, absolutely yeah. true. Yeah. Yeah. Fortunately, the horse didn't pop up and pay, you know, 60. Big balloons later or something. Or something. Like yeah, 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 yeah. Because yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> he was being stiffed. Right. <laughs> And, much as you may have already suspected, the nom de plumes under which handicapping selections were divulged were oftentimes the work of more than one nom. We became uh, in such a rush to get the paper out every after late afternoon to get it out on time because it had to be shipped to, you know, to all over the East Coast that they broke up the handicapping duties. The public never knew that, mm -hmm. but that rate count didn't really exist or sharpshooter or whatever the name, okay. that it would be one guy would do three Over races, here, another yeah, guy yeah. would do okay. three races, okay. another guy would do three races. If they needed another right. set of selections, that yeah. same guy might simply pick another two or three horses. Okay. It, was, it was a brand name, basically. Yeah, it was, guess, and it was essentially phony. Yeah. I mean, it really... I found it distasteful myself. Um, so Hermes, uh, he's still in there, right? Uh, in the race. Yeah, so I, they, I can't yeah. speak to what goes on today. I have no idea how they do it. But I know in the days that I worked in uh, in Heightstown, where we published the Eastern Edition, that that Hermes was three guys, if not five guys, <laughs> and three different That's guys every day. Yeah, and yeah. It was really, in some sense, fraudulent. Well, everyone's on a need-to-know basis, I think, yeah. It wasn't all Runyon-esque ribaldry, though. Those who worked at the forum, like Joe and his dad, had great affection for the sport that was part of their everyday life, and great affection for the people who put on that show every day. Oh, no, about my father. My father used yeah. to, the jockeys put on a, uh, a banquet every year. Yep. Uh, they raised money, I think, for their insurance fund or whatever, but I think it was the, the money went to, um, he, uh, went to help disabled riders and all that kind of stuff. And they put on a, a banquet every year. And with that banquet, there was a, a show yep. that was written, generally parodies of popular music and all okay. that. My father would write all those parodies. Oh, wow. Um, and yeah. they were performed by Eddie Arcaro and P.D. Anderson and, oh, wow. and, um, and Bill Hartack and uh, Ted Atkinson and you know yeah. all the writers who were current, I yeah. guess, in the 50s. Yeah. Um, and they were quite good shows, and they would get MCs, MCs of some, I think of some renown at the time, but mm -hmm. before they became really major stars, like Sammy Davis Jr. was an MC. Oh, wow. Johnny Carson was an MC. No way, really? Oh, um, and they were directed by uh, by people who were in, in the profession. They were professionally directed. Um, I remember one of the directors was, uh, I forget his name, but 
there was you might remember the Sergeant Bilko show. Oh, sure, yeah, Phil Silvers. Yeah, there was yeah, a yeah. character named yeah. Paparelli. Okay, all right. And, and that guy yeah. was a director of of many of no uh, way. Billy wow. Sands, I think his okay. name was. Okay, he was the director of many of those shows, and they were yeah, really quite yeah, funny. And the jocks would dress in drag, and in those days, that was both acceptable and I guess funny. Yeah, humorous. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And and my father would write yeah. parodies for all that. During the forum's 1960 heydays, a pair of Joes, one not at all average and the other not average either, but probably closer to average than the other Joe, and employed by the firm, made an unlikely pair of roommates. This Felix and Oscar pairing had its origins in the common friendship they had with Sonny Werblin, owner of the New York Jets, chairman of Madison Square Garden, and a major shareholder of Monmouth Park. You know, Joe Namath back in the late 60s, you know, was, was the toast of the town. And But I think what a lot of people don't know was that Joe Hirsch, the racing form, was his roommate, correct? Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, which is not a coupling I think you would have thought of. Uh, uh, no. Yeah. No, they didn't seem to have on, on the face of it a whole lot in common. Yeah. Joe Hirsch was, and is still, of course, one of the more influential journalists who have ever covered our sport. The esteem he has held in to this day is reflected in the naming of the Joe Hirsch Turf Classic, a grade one event held every September at Belmont Park. It was, oddly, uh, you mentioned Joe Hirsch. It was, <laughs> he, he got the job at the racing farm through my brother. Okay. My, my brother was, uh, I guess, a teenager, and we lived on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. And uh, he had a friend named Richie who uh, had a friend who had a brother who turned out ultimately to be a TV producer. But in any case, this friend of, of had another friend who was in Ed, who was graduating from NYU who mm-hmm. was looking for a job. Would it be all right? Would would it be okay if he sent him up to my father? Okay. To be interviewed. Yeah. And that was Joe Hirsch. And my father hired Joe Hirsch at that point. Wow. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Okay. But he ended up being like the dean of turf riders for. Oh, yeah. I mean, it, he was wrote into the nineties, I think. Anyway, didn't he? If not a little beyond that. What's that? Joe Hirsch didn't he write for the form into like well into the nineteen nineties? Yeah, I, I was think, right? I was long gone. You were gone that, from that. Yeah. Yeah. That yeah. yeah. Perhaps one of the most legendary names to ever grace the pages of the old form was Charles Hatton, who wrote the memorable line after one of Raisin Native's workouts. Raisin Native worked down the Belmont backstretch this morning. The tree swayed. I love Charles Hatton. Again, I, I wouldn't call myself an intimate of, of Charles Hatton, but I mean, I liked him a lot. I yeah. respect him. He's a great writer. I mean, he, uh, he, he really did have the ability to coin phrases that became cliches, but they weren't cliches when he coined them. Yeah. You know, they became cliches after he, yeah. after he coined them. He was a very clever man. Um, also quite nice to me, very quiet. Um, during the winter, he used to, um, I think he, he used to do the, year summary that that was published in those days in the in the in the um the manual yeah oh, okay yeah okay. he used to and he used to write it mm-hmm. in the library i guess he had all the uh the, the information that he needed there and it probably had the help of steve haskin who was probably the librarian or the assistant librarian okay oh that's days. how he goes okay oh yeah, yeah. Steve okay. started as a librarian okay at the, at the racing form in the, at the both in new york and then subsequently in new jersey um but he was a very nice guy, but mm-hmm. a really quite a good writer. I mean, uh, he was he was excellent. Joe Hirsch and Charles Hatton were far from the only thoughtful, erudite, thoroughly professional writers that graced the pages of the form. However, another very good writer was Bob Hood. Was didn't have quite the stylistic ability that that Hatton had, but I thought he really knew racing and had you know interesting things to say about yeah. about 
about horses and, and the races that he saw. Um, I'm not so sure that the writers who subsequently wrote for the Racing Forum had quite the insight or ability that those guys had. Uh, Barney Nagler was quite a great writer, okay. too. Barney was a tremendous stylist. Yeah. I don't know that he was particularly interested in the nuances of racing, mm-hmm. but, I mean, he was uh, really quite a good writer, and I always admired him because, as a writer, um, Actually, I remember coming to Saratoga one time, going to the press box, and he had a column to write. And he sat down, and he wrote one page, two pages, three pages, and it's done. I, I and I thought to myself, I can't write that way. How do they do that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, mean, I, I can't. Yeah, yeah. I don't have that ability to sit, just write three perfect pages and yep. submit yeah. it. You know, yeah. without. Uh, he was a very talented guy, um, and also extremely well read and erudite. Joe raised an interesting point about how racing has changed in the public perception that had not occurred to me before, but is one well worth pondering. Well, the sport was much more popular back then, let's face it, right? And so um, you were probably more likely to be able to hire people that not only loved racing, but had other pursuits and other interests. And, yeah, that, that may be very well be true. I don't mm-hmm. know. I mean, again, I'm not really conversing with racing um, now, but I mean, it, when I left it, it was starting to become, it seemed to me, like a lottery. When you could go to a racetrack and bet on five or ten different racetracks and you can you can have post time coming up for four different races yeah, that yeah. people, I mean, to me, that's, you might as well be playing, a, you know, a lottery rather. I always thought racing was, the thing I loved about racing was it was a, an intellectual pursuit. Mm-hmm. It was you agree, against yeah. everybody else yeah, there. I yeah. mean, you all... Are, we're all operating with the same basic information, um, and we're all reaching different conclusions. Right, right. Some of us are going to be right, and some of us are going to be wrong. And I thought that was what made it interesting, that it was all there uh, in the PPs, and it was up to you to figure it out. Yeah, you yeah. Know, otherwise, you could just bet numbers or bet colors or bet, you know, that was nonsense. Once it, it, to me, lost the sense of being an intellectual pursuit, it was no longer interesting to me. In this day of satellite printing plants, such you can buy, for instance, the New York Times or USA Today in the most remote regions of the country, it's worth remembering that it wasn't always that way. So you had like, let's say, eight or ten running lines for each horse. Then you must have had to like keep that horse in set in type yes. until the next time he showed up. And yeah, then absolutely. That, so it was, it was, they were it was like a vault? There. Or, yeah, uh, there were, I think yeah. my memory is that there was like a wall of them. I don't remember be exactly. Huge. Yeah. Oh, yeah, it was yeah. a tremendous operation. Yeah. You know, that we had, uh, I think, three floors. The bottom floor was the press room. The, the second floor was business operations editorial, and the third floor was a composing room. The composing room. Wow, wow. So what happened, like, for instance, if a horse came in from the West Coast and his data was out? Uh, I think they know. sent the lines in from, from L.A., and they would set all those lines. Okay, all right, they just reset them. Okay, yeah. okay, yeah. all right, wow, wow, that's fascinating. Yeah, it wasn't that. like, uh, I assume it is today, where you could send, th- you could send data. Just you know, over the you know, wire, yeah. It doesn't mean anything. Yeah, I think yeah. they actually... Sent the lines, um, and then and then set them uh, upstairs. upstairs yeah. I, yeah. I wouldn't swear to that, but I can't think of any other way that they would do it. Yeah, yeah. You know, no other way would seem to be to work. And the results charts also had a time-sensitive aspect that had to be addressed in times before you could instantly transmit a digital communication over the wire. A lot of people wore different hats day in and day out to make sure that happened on a timely basis. And you were talking about tight deadlines getting the paper out. Um, you had the charts coming in, too, right, from the tracks for the day. 
and those have to be set. I mean, you had the chart caller, I guess, who, uh, and then the chart taker, right? Because there were two roles, right? Chart caller and chart taker, is that? Well, they were at the major tracks. Yeah. You had a chart, uh, a caller and a taker. I think that what they ultimately did at, uh, at the smaller tracks, and maybe they did it at the larger tracks too, I don't know ultimately, was... Uh, Call it call the stuff in. I guess into a tape recorder. Okay. All because right. they wanted they didn't want to staff two people when they could staff one. Yeah. Um, and those same guys were the correspondents, and so you had correspondents writing from the smaller tracks, but they were not trained as writers or reporters. Yeah. They were. I mean, the joke always was that they, they would be short a track man suddenly. And a guy be walking by in, in the press box yeah. and say, hey, "Are you busy?" Mm -hmm. I said, "How'd you like to be?" The, the, <laughs> so I mean, we, you know, those guys could generally couldn't write and, and weren't expected mm -hmm. to be able to write. Yeah, it was well, without saying that much of the of what they said was really not terribly usable. So did you have like like my dad started out as a rewrite man? Did you have rewrite guys that would take in the kind of raw stuff that they gave you? Yeah, and... we. we, the, we they weren't called rewrite men because the operation was so small. I okay. mean, we just had copy yeah. editors, but copy editors did everything. Yeah. They wrote heads. They rewrote stuff. They wrote stuff originally. Yeah. Um, they did everything. And this was back in the day when, uh, you mentioned it earlier, you had one printing plant, so printed everything and then it had to get shipped everywhere, yes. right? This is not like USA Today with satellite. No, 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 yeah, no. Yeah, they had talked yeah. about that. I, it, it, yeah. I, I think that may be what they do now, although I have no idea. No, we had our own printing plant. We we had our own presses, a whole business, yeah. um, and trucks, and all, yeah. The, yeah. They all came yeah. out of High Sound, New Jersey. Joe brought us back to the time when many sharp handicappers resented the form publishing added data that, up to that point, had been the purview of those on the inside or those who followed the sport assiduously, keeping their own stats. In fact, I remember resenting to some degree when they started to really augment the racing form past performances that they took away, in some sense, some of the angles that those of us use, mm -hmm. they gave them to the public. Right, Horses right. moving up, horses moving down, yep. horses racing against uh, older horses, that kind of stuff. I, I mean, you really had to know the horse population at one right, point. Right, And then uh, I think it was a service to the public in a sense, but it was to me a disservice to true handicappers because that was our, our angle. Interestingly enough, Joe's years under now and then controversial Rupert Murdoch were fruitful, as was the same Murdoch regime for my dad in Boston. As the years rolled on into the 80s and early 90s, though, the dreaded corporate reorganization was never far away. Somehow, coincidentally, I'm sure, always managed to find older, higher-paid employees, causing Joe to bring up three initials, KKR, referring to the leveraged buyout firm Kohlberg, Kravis, and Roberts, that back in those 80s and 90s struck fear in the hearts of anyone who heard them in reference to their current employer. I was, uh, I guess I was fired. <laughs> I guess I can't think of putting another word that makes it that's appropriate. Asked to find another opportunity. Well, we, you know, uh, there was, yeah. I, I couldn't yeah. survive, I think I survived two or three ownership changes. Okay. I think I didn't survive the third. What they ultimately did was get rid of almost everybody who had both an institutional memory and was making a reasonable sum of money because he or she had worked there over the years. Um, I was fired in November of 1992. Okay. And um, I was out of work for six months at the age of 53. And I was very fortunate to hook on with a publication called Travel Weekly. Okay. And that mm. changed my life for the better. I ended up traveling all over the world. 
and okay. ended up That's retiring. What's that? That's a good deal. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. And I ended up retiring there in 2005 as executive editor. So I, the, the, the racing form by firing me actually ended up doing me a favor. So you must have got uh, asked to find another. Let's just say asked to find another assignment after the Murdoch. Uh, Murdoch was over, I guess, Murdoch right? yeah. was there. Uh, I was uh, I was there with Murdoch probably for I don't know a year, a year and a half. Mm-hmm. And Murdoch, um, that organization was very, very good to me. Okay. Um, mm-hmm. uh, it was good to my dad too, by the way. Yeah, so, uh, they yeah. were great. Yeah. great to me. Yeah. And in fact. Uh, it was the Murdoch people who made me the national managing editor, position okay. I held a, a very short time. But uh, because they ended up selling uh, selling the, uh, the the paper to um, KKR. Oh, right, right. Okay. Yep. Yeah. And okay. KKR was yep. the destruction for you know meant uh, the end for for almost not everybody, but uh, many of us didn't survive the KKR's ownership. Those three initials were destructive for a lot of firms oh, uh, yeah. back no, in those days. No uh, question about it. Yeah. Again, Murdoch yeah. was great for, for me. I, okay. Uh, you know, his politics aside, um, he, he was a great, that organization, from my experience, was great to work for. Well, he was definitely committed to the newspaper business. And when he bought the Herald, uh, and he bought it when it was, I mean, it was literally hours away from expiring, actually. And, and you know, my, he... Um, one of the first things that did was came to my dad and said, "We want you to stay on." He was the editorial writer at the time, and they were they were very very good to him. We have we had no complaints about the Murdoch family. Well, one either. of the things that, that Murdoch did was the people he sent to actually run the paper to be responsible for it. I'm not talking about the editors or the publisher, but the overseers. Mm-hmm. Um, not only knew what they were doing, they knew racing and loved racing. Okay, you okay. know, and I think well, that was the, a major yeah, English Australian background, yeah, right? Yeah, that so, really helped. Well, yeah. actually, no. Okay. The guy who uh, who really was ostensibly in charge of us was, I, I guess, a New Yorker. But I mean, he loved racing. Okay. Um, yep. And that was good, and that was yeah. good for all of us. Um, if he had not, Murdoch had not sold that paper, I probably would have ended up, you know, working there for another for 10 another, years. yeah, yeah. But uh, yeah. again. Uh, it all worked out in the end. I was very, very fortunate uh, the way things worked out for me. Then, then when I had to go find another job, <laughs> it really was, uh, you know, something that, that, that was uh, distasteful. Although, again, I was very, very yeah. lucky to end up where I ended up. Well, you had been there for how long at that point? When I started working full-time on June 6, 1966. But I had okay. worked before that. I worked summers. Um, when I was going to college, I, yeah. I think I might have even, I don't think I worked there when I was in high school, but certainly when I was going to college, I worked there a summer starting as a copy boy yeah. and all that other. Well, basically you had 30 years in at the forum between oh, part-time and yeah, yeah. Absolutely. And your dad prior to that as well. So absolutely. it was in the family. It was a family oh, absolutely. Uh, pursuit. I, yeah. 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 Um, that's why I came in such a shock when they uh, fired me. I mean, I thought, yeah. you know. I had an institutional memory. I was uh, in. I thought I was quite good at what I did. Yeah. Um, and I thought I'd be the. Oh, it was pointless to go over all of that. It's you know. It's, no, 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 no. It's ancient it, history. It's interesting though because uh, look, I was reorganized out of corporate life. That's how I ended up. Uh, how I ended up doing this, and you know, especially you haven't, you haven't been in it for so long. The family business. There's a whole period where you have to kind of 
absorb all that and and uh, you know put it behind you. It's it's not easy to do, right? And I, ma- I imagine that was a difficult time. Oh, was it every for yeah. me? It was a very difficult time because yeah. you're, I think it's very hard to go through something like that and not be riddled with self doubt. Sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's all I had ever done. Yeah. Yeah. I'd never done anything else other than yeah. work for the racing forum, and then to start looking for another job uh, at the age of fifty three, and I. I did not want to do anything with racing. Yeah. I had really then been totally turned off with, to the idea of having anything to do with racing, so I ruled all of that out. And I did, I guess, what other people do. So I answered ads in the New York Times. Yeah. And apparently I'm one of one of the very few people in the history of the world that actually got a job. Got a job through answering, answering the ad. Well, you had the journalism background. You had the master's in journalism. And you, you were clearly someone who appreciated the written word and the art of the written word. Um, but I knew nothing about the travel business. But we've all traveled, Joe, right? So, I mean, right? So, um, but as a function of that, I mean, I ended up going to Japan, China several times, uh, all through Europe. Yeah. All, you know, I mean, uh, yeah, it uh, worked know, out good. Morocco and Israel. Yeah. Oh, my I gosh. Mean, wow. Really? Yeah. I mean, yeah. Uh, when you could travel to those places. Yeah. yeah. It was terrific. Uh, yeah. It was very, and again, I ended up working with very, very good, talented people. Uh, who I respected and grew to respect me, and I, there's nothing much more that you can ask yeah, than yeah. that, it seems to me. Newspapers, then and today, always have had their share of behind-the-scenes battles over story placement, headlines, you name it. I wanted. I was thinking about stopping in Saratoga at a gift shop. I know that there's a, there are copies of the racing form that, that they sell, right? Mm-hmm. And there's one, the Woody Stevens one, where he won the... What was it, third or fifth? I don't five, know. five in a row, yeah. Five in a row. I remember yeah. writing that streamer, and I, I, tell us that story with. <laughs> I'd like to make a copy of that just because I wrote that that streamer, but I think I've told uh, people that uh, I wrote that streamer. I was very proud of it. I don't remember exactly what it said, but I thought it encapsulated what what had happened, and I might have used the word amazing, which is not something you would see in in eighty six point type every day. Um, <laughs> But I mean, I thought it was, whatever it is that I wrote, I thought it was particularly appropriate. Um, and I remember I didn't get along all that well with the editor in those days. And uh, I came in that Monday morning, and uh, he called m- me at my desk and, s- and said he wanted to speak to me. Could I come into his office? And I thought, well, finally, finally, I'm going to get you know <laughs> yeah, yeah. the praise and support <laughs> that I've been looking for all these years. And he called me in, and what he said to me was, you know, we don't use words like amazing. Oh, okay. And I remember saying, hey, you know, this is fifth. Five in a row. That's 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 pretty amazing. How else are you going to describe it? But that's (laughs) pretty good. But in any case, I'd like to take a pic. I'd like to take a picture of that. I remember um, being told that the ultimate irony was for being criticized for writing that headline, but that that page was. Being sold for like twenty or thirty dollars someplace. Oh, started. really? <laughs> Go back to him now. Find him and say, "Hey." <laughs> Finally, I always maintain that people who really and truly love horse racing are cultural and intellectual seekers of the highest order. Maybe that's my way of trying to pat myself on the back, me being more of an intellectual lightweight. But listen to Joe Riff, if you will, on jazz and popular music. It's it's like my interest in jazz stopped, mm-hmm. you know, in, in the mid fifties <laughs> and sixties. With you Coltrane know? or something. Right, it never yeah. got beyond Coltrane and Miles yeah. and Thelonious Monk and yeah. all of that stuff. Yeah. You know. 
So what do you think about it? So because I'm a bit of a music aficionado, not as much jazz, but I'm conversant enough with it. What do you think about modern jazz? Well, I mean, a lot of it leaves me cold. I just came from the from uh, the Montreal Jazz Festival, yep. and uh, uh, you know, a lot of it's too atonal for me. I, you know, I, I miss the a lot of that hard bop of the fifties yeah. and sixties. Yeah, I mean, some of it I like, and I always love rock. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I grew up when I was a kid on, on rhythm and blues of the Cleftones and the Del Vikings and oh, the man. Cadillacs yeah. and all yeah, of that yeah, stuff. Yeah. Going to the rock and roll shows of Alan Freed at the Brooklyn Paramount and, yep. the, yeah, know, yeah. and all of that yeah. stuff. Um, and then I, I became interested in jazz through my late brother who introduced me to the Benny Goodman mm-hmm. concert in 1930, you know, the concert and then Glenn Miller after. Yeah, and yeah, then yeah, listening yeah. to the Birdland show and all kinds of modern of yeah. jazz of that era. Um, but I mean, I love all kinds of music. I love rock of the 60s. Mm-hmm. I, I used to go to the Fillmore all the time. Oh, wow. I saw wow. Janice there. and yeah. I mean, not 10 years after and yeah. Poco and I, I mean, uh, Steppenwolf, I mean, the I saw them all. Wow. But wow. I, I love music in general. I love some country music. I love classical. I like some opera. Um, but, but, but in any case, my, my, my interest in jazz, I think, just got arrested somehow in the, in the, uh, the mid to late 50s. Yeah. Well, I agree with that. I think, in, and, and you're much more of a jazz aficionado than I am, but there's a lot of at- atonal, I think, is a good word for it, right? It's, uh, you know, I, when I think of, like, jazz, when it, you know, really special is when, you know, the musicians are listening to each other mm-hmm. and, you know, taking their cues and playing off of those. And uh, I saw, I took my son to see Dave Brubeck uh, at the Berkeley Performance Center about 10 oh, years ago. I love ago. Brubeck. I love Joe Morello. Yeah, He's a great I mean, drummer. And the guy, the guy still had it, you know. I mean, he still, and he was sick that night. I'll never forget, he was sick that night, but he still had it. And they, they did, uh, oh, I, can't forget, I can't remember the song now, but they clearly got into a groove with it and he just kept playing it over and over and over again, but faster and faster, and 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 it was like, and you could tell that it just kind of come up. The, the you know that. Well, that's one of the things know. I used to like. Not used to. I still love about listening to Monk, is that um, he'll be playing a little figure, and I I almost can sense that he's thinking to himself. I like that. that sounds pretty good. Yeah, I like yeah. that. I'm going to play <laughs> yeah. that again, but I'm going to play it a little different. Yeah, yeah. And then I'm going to yeah. play that a little different again. Yeah. I'm gonna play it a little different again. Yeah. You know? Um, yeah, I hear the, again, to me, music has got to, for me to like, it's got to be lyrical and melodic and yeah. swing. Yeah. You know, yeah. uh, uh, if it doesn't do at least two of those things, I'm probably not going to like it. It's a little hard much. to, yeah. 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 No, it's a little hard to listen to. It was a great conversation with Joe, and I really enjoyed it. I hope you did too. Join us next week for another edition of the Can Do Horse Racing Podcast. Thank you.